1: Folks, get your popcorn buttered, get your fountain drink ready, because there's going to be some spoilers from the Thor Love and Thunder movie out in theaters now, if you have not seen Thor Love and Thunder. For God's sakes, do not listen to this podcast, this section in which we talk about that movie, until you have seen the movie. Please do that. Go watch the movie. Lots of spoilers in here for Thor, Love and Thunder, and Miss Marvel episodes four and five. So please see that stuff before you listen here. Hello! My name is Jason Concepcion. Welcome to X-Ray Vision, the crooked podcast where we dive deep into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture. In today's episode, on the previously on news segment, where we'll be talking about uh, the Paper Girls trailer, the uh, adaptation of the beloved Brian K. Vaughn, Cliff Chang uh, comic book from Image Comics. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, some Stranger Things spin-off news uh, from the Duffer brothers. And then we're going to be catching up on Miss Marvel episodes four and five. In the airlock, we're diving all the way deep into Thor Love and Thunder. And of course, if you want to jump around, check out the timestamps in the show notes to find all the things that we talk about. And joining me now. We're back, baby. After a week layoff, filling her mind library with ever more information ever more wisdom to give to the people is the number 1 comics encyclopedia now overflowing with things to tell you it's a great rosie night rosie how are
2: you i'm good i'm so happy to be back we needed the one week break but now we're back but we needed it what did you with do did you do anything good um I actually, I I did too much work, sadly, oh, but I also okay. did do. I did go away for like two days, so that was nice. Nice, yeah. I so uh,
1: was... I went to the desert, and uh, that's and also just where I went, the
2: just after you. <laughs> I, I,
1: I gotta tell you, it was like one hundred and thirteen degrees every day, but it was also very very relaxing, and I enjoyed it.
2: Yeah, and whenever. I... Whenever I go to the desert, I feel like Superman. I'm like, I am being powered up by the yellow sun. Like the desert. (laughs) There's something about it where I'm just like, this heat is nourishing me. I'm probably getting like shriveled and old, but I feel empowered. I love the desert. Uh, Thank you, desert.
1: I I too love it. Um, Folks, let's get into the news. Paper Girls trailer. The trailer for Amazon Prime's Paper Girls Dropped this week again, an adaptation from the comic series The Same Name by Brian K. Vaughan, illustration art by Cliff Chang. Uh, it is a show about four uh, paper delivery girls, like 12 or 13-year-olds, in 1988, uh, who are pulled into a time-traveling adventure where they encounter future versions of themselves— Uh, It's time copying in the way that their time traveling is kind of against the law. And it's a great if you want to dive into a completely original comics world, uh, Paper Girls on Image Comics is there for you. The show comes out on July 29th. Uh, I was I thought the trailer looked fantastic. The color scheme it reminds me so much of the comic they, it seems like they nailed the casting, uh, and I'm really excited by it. What, what, what were your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm so impressed by everything to do with this show. Like from the moment that they first revealed the cast to this trailer, they just Amazon something we can say about whoever's making these shows at Amazon. They know when to in- totally commit to the comics like this, and they know when to distance themselves. Like the boys, and we've kind of said this, and this is like so incredible to see Cliff's visual language and landscape brought to the screen, especially in the colors, because Paper Girl uses coloring in a very specific way. The colors by Matt Wilson are just astonishing in that book, and they're used in a very narrative, important way. And it's just also like one of the coolest looking books. I remember working in a comic shop when it was coming out and you just wanted to get those neon issues every time, like the beautiful covers. And yeah, this is definitely one where I would say read it now or if the trailer looks really enticing to you, wait. And then you can be surprised when you watch the show. I also, something that I think is really cool about this when we talk about committing to the comics, something that Amazon... PR is doing here, which is really incredible. Every single time they write about Paper Girls, they shout out Brian K. Vaughan and they shout out Cliff Chang. And they are adding them and they are saying, these are the people who made this. These are the people, this is the reason this exists. So I think this could be a real step forward when it comes to how closely connected the creators are to the show. Also... Image is creator-owned. Creator-owned, so as this I, is yeah, I was there. about to say. This so is their The brand
1: is Brian K. Vaughn,
2: mm-hmm. not it, so it, much
1: Image Comics.
2: Exactly. So I'm really excited. I think it looks great. I'm very stoked to see that on the internet, Same. Like there was a lot of people who were like, oh, this looks like Stranger Things, da 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 But the Paper Girls fandom has been there being like, well, actually, and correctly well, so.
1: <laughs> a, gr- a great point to bring up. Um, because it's it's interesting. We do, I, I I just got done with uh, Stranger Things uh, season four. Mm-hmm. I think uh, uh, many of us have. Uh, it's a show set in the eighties with lots of eighties references that clearly uh, uh, is inspired by you know the work of Steven Spielberg and mm-hmm. other kind of. Um, YA movies of the era, kids on bikes having an adventure. I was going to say the bikes are such a visual touch point for both. And so I was wondering, while watching the trailer and then going back and flipping through uh, the first couple of issues of of Paper Girls uh, on Image, I wonder how much the success of Stranger Things affected choices that they made in the show because... You know, I mean, the opening of the comic. There's like a reference to the Challenger explosion. There's all these pop culture mm-hmm. '80s references. There's a kid dressed as Freddy Krueger, like <laughs> <laughs> you know, in the opening, in the opening, uh, the pages, and all of that would feel, I think, pretty Stranger Thingsian to mm-hmm. those who were not initiated to the, to the comics or who weren't reading the comics at the time. So I wonder. I really wonder how much. The showrunners and the production team either leaned into the 80s references, the stuff that's on the page, or leaned away from those choices, not wanting to, you know, ride on a wave that Mm -hmm. has been created by another show.
2: I think it's really interesting to think about, because I think that there's probably no way that Paper Girls gets made into a TV show at all without Stranger Things, or at least not this speedily. So thank you, Stranger Things, because I wanted a Paper Girls show probably more than most (laughs) other comic book shows. But Paper Girls did come out, you know, almost a year before. The first issue of Paper Girls came out almost a year before um, Stranger Things. My gut says you cannot, the point of Paper Girls, as well as Stranger Things, is that to evoke that nostalgia. The question is, do they do it in the Stranger Things way, which is like, look at this thing that is from that era? Or do they do it in tone and shift? I would love to mm. see them evoke different parts of the 80s that we don't necessarily get to see in the same way. So I'll be really... I think that's one of the most interesting things to look for as we go into the show is like, what do they do to separate themselves from Stranger Things? And not in a negative way, just because you this is a unique, different kind of story. So I'm very interested
1: yeah, not in a negative way at all, but just understanding, like, how storytellers, mm-hmm. you know, like to work is you always want to do something that is your own. Even if you're working yep. in the same time period, the same milieu, That you know, um, there's certain references to historical events from 1988 that are, not, uh, you know, going to mm-hmm. be unavoidable. And, of course, like Stranger Things is in 86. So there is – little bit of air gap in terms of years oh yeah that was actually a really good
2: point (laughs) but they're gonna scoop stranger things for the late 80s but you know
1: (laughs) i i'd imagine if i was if i was working on this i'd be like i don't know this is like fun but like stranger things did this so i don't know i did i would just be fascinated to know Mm -hmm. like what the conversation was um speaking of stranger things uh matt and ross duffer the duffer brothers Creators of the Stranger Things television program on the Netflix streaming platform have announced uh, per deadline that they have launched uh, their own uh, company, Upside Down Pictures, and they are working on uh, producing a Stranger Things spinoff. Per deadline, following the record-breaking release of the two final episodes of Stranger Things season four, creators Matt and Ross have formed Upside Down Pictures and recommitted to Netflix with several new projects. Uh, Those include a live-action series adaptation of Death Note, the famed Japanese manga and anime, written by Tsutsugumi Oba and with illustrations by Takishi Obata, uh, an original series from creators Jeffrey Addis and Will Matthews. Uh, Dark Crystal Resistance could come out of Upside Down Pictures, a series adaptation of Stephen King and Peter Straub's 1984 novel The Talisman, uh, which speaking as a kinghead, excited for that one. Uh, A new stage play set within the world and mythology of Stranger Things produced by uh, UK-based stage producer Sonia Friedman and the aforementioned live-action Stranger Things spinoff based on an original idea by the Duffer Brothers with Upside Down and 21 laps producing. Uh, This just makes a lot of sense. Yeah, You know, uh, uh, this is by, I think any measure although with Netflix it's hard to understand what measure what by what Netflix measure is official means. measures by, <laughs> right by the by just anecdotally knowing all the people who are talking about this show and who have watched it and understanding what Netflix the hit what it means as a hit to Netflix it just makes sense yeah. to do this and uh, um I'm excited listen give let's give Steve Let's give the, <gasps> let's Steve give Steven Dustin
2: spin-off. Bring Steven Dustin no. <laughs> spin-off. Is is that
1: not what we want That's from the what world? the people
2: want. I was almost going to say a spoiler, but I'll save that for when we actually talk about Stranger Things. Yes. That's what the people want. I am intrigued by this. I think that was a cool like talisman Easter egg as well in stri- in the mm. second volume of the Stranger Things new season. So that's kind of a fun lead-in kind of doing that Mike Flanagan world within yes. a world sort of thing. Um I I'm wary of that first uh, the first announcement, the Death Note uh, adaptation. We'll, Netflix we'll, we'll has see done that it goes. before, but let's we'll see, see where, where it goes. goes. We'll you know what? Goes. I'm open to it. There's been plenty of brilliant already uh, Death Note adaptations in Japan, so it's not going to take those away. And maybe it'll add something really cool and new. I love anything like YA kid storytelling. That's like. And we'll talk about that more when we talk about Thor. Like that, I'm a sucker for that. So the notion that we could see a new, cool version of that, yeah, I'm open to it. I'm open to it. I love Dark Crystal: Age of Resistance. That was like one of my favorite TV shows in the last <sighs> few get, years. I
1: need, I need to get in on that because I heard.
2: Oh my things. god, it is like so good. It when you watch it, you almost cannot believe it's real. It is so... I gotta get into it. It's so... Un- you're gonna love it so much. I know everything you love and you're just gonna love it. It is so <laughs> well, ambitious. listen, I love the original
1: Dark, Dark yeah. Crystal movie.
2: It's like, imagine that, but it's a prestige TV show with like an a never-ending budget and everything is... There's obviously incredible CG, but there's a lot of practical puppetry. So it is just like, that's my ultimate, I wish they would renew it show that got cancelled. So the idea that that team teaming up with the Stranger Things team, who was obviously so influenced by that era of filmmaking. I think that's really exciting.
1: And we will be uh, talking about Stranger Things more on a uh, upcoming episode. I gotta say, just as a quick knee-jerk reaction, this was mm-hmm. my favorite season of Stranger Things for for yeah. primarily because we've we're finally like fleshing out the lore of the world. And, you know, I'm a, we're both big, like, world-building mm-hmm. rules people. And just understanding more about the Upside Down, how the Mind Flayer works, Vecna's role, and all of this mm-hmm. stuff. That, that was really fun to learn about all that stuff.
2: Yeah. It also brings in two of my favorite things, which is, like, I absolutely love horror storytelling and, like, fantasy yeah. horror. And that is brought in in such an expansive and unexpected way here. And also... I thought the satanic panic aspect of the show and the storytelling—that is something that really speaks to me. That notion of Same. like being othered, and, and I, I thought that Joseph Quinn as Eddie is just like that's got to be one of my favorite characters from a TV show in ever. <laughs> and I saw so much love there for him. So like, I yeah, it's this feels again. It, it's been a little while since we've had one of those moments where you feel like everybody's talking about it. Yeah, you know. So it's it's, it's been kind a of a while fun since s- we've had that. Yeah, it's, it's been fun to see that everyone getting excited about it for the good reasons. For the it's all it's all because people are passionate about it. So it's it's been exciting to be a part of that again.
1: Miss Marvel episodes four and five, uh, lightning recap uh, of both. Let's start with episode four, titled "Seeing Red," um, hey. and basically here's what you need to know. Kamala goes to Karachi. She meets up with. Uh, her nanny and some cousins. She meets uh, Kareem, a member of the Red Daggers, and learns about the Red Daggers, this group that ha- has been uh, working behind the scenes over there. She goes to—Kamala goes to Red Dagger headquarters where she meets uh, the leaders of the group. Uh, we learn more about the realm of the clandestines come from. Uh, and then fucking— the department of damage control Ugh. absolutely fumbles the fucking bag once again uh, once again once it's like you can just you can just take them to their cells you don't have to be assholes about it anyway the department of damage control are uh, escorting Najima and her group uh, to their cells but they have to be really racist about it and this leads to a big fight and uh, Najima and the clandestines escape uh, Waleed is killed in a in a fight uh, back in uh, Karachi, and uh, we see a portal open, and Kamala goes through and arrives that fateful night back in 1947 when Sana'a followed trail of stars to her father, and Aisha disappeared. On to episode five. We open on newsreel footage from August 1947, the eve of India's independence and the creation of the state of Pakistan. We see... Uh, India's leader, uh, Nehru, and Pakistan's leader and founding figure, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, making speeches. And then we see crowds of people on the move as these two states are created. And Hindus who are living in what will soon become Pakistan are leaving for India and Muslims in uh, India leaving for Pakistan. Of course, this process, historical process, which uh, was... I believe the largest mass migration of people in history, in the history of the world, talking millions of people on the move, was accompanied by a lot of violence, a lot of destruction, and a a lot of heartache for people who for generations had been living in a place, living in the place that they're you know, family had lived in for generations, all of a sudden forced to uproot themselves and move. That's the historical context. We arrive in 1942, flashback from this newsreel footage. Uh, British troops are pursuing Kamala's great-grandmother, Aisha, through the the forest. She suddenly turns and does something which takes down the soldier. Later, we see an activist handing out handbills and talking to a crowd about the independence movement. Agitating uh, this crowd of eager locals about why they should uh, be an independent nation and how they can do that with the the least amount of chaos and rioting possible. And then all of a sudden British troops arrive and they, of course they've got Indian auxiliaries also and they don't want people talking about this. So they disperse the crowd uh, using force. Aisha later is uh, wearing the bangle. We see her wearing the bangle. She's sleeping in a field. Uh, Turns out that's the that's this man's field. His name is Hassan. Uh, And he wakes her up. And he's like, hey, you know, if you want to my house is right over here, if you want to come in and get something to eat and rest in there. That night, she comes in and very, very, very reluctantly eats dinner, which (laughs) you don't have to tell me twice. If you're offering food, I'm eating. Uh, Aisha doesn't talk much uh, and it's uh, – we understand why of course but Hassan does not. She, it's clear that she's not from around here. It's also clear that she's not uh, British. Um, so who who is she? What's what's her deal? Uh, Aisha is very closed-lipped about this but eventually she reveals that uh, she likes Hassan's – Hassan grows roses uh, and she thinks they're great. That gets them talking. Now they introduce themselves, and she is Aisha. We know he is Hassan. We just learned that, and folks, you can tell right away by the way they're looking at each other. They're going to make babies, mm-hmm. and it happens in the very next scene. We fast forward to uh, Aisha has got Hassan's roses in her hair. They are uh, being very loving to each other. A camera bound pans down, and guess what? It's baby on board time. That is. Within that belly is Sana, Kamala's grandmother. The growing family is at peace. And we fast forward years later, we see um, Sana'a playing with Aisha's bangle as a BBC radio reports on the violence that is gripping the country. This is post-independence now and the partition is taking place or around the time of mm-hmm. independence as, as this mass migration is taking place. Uh, Hassan is upset. He is Muslim. He lives in what will become India. Already, people in the village that he and his family have lived in for many years are being shunned by certain members of the community, although there is also a lot of generosity within that community. Uh, And he is angry because he's really grappling with the very real possibility that he's going to have to flee the home that has been his home for generations. A villager comes to offer him them some food, and he rejects it. He's angry about it. Um, that night, Aisha meets Najima out in the field, and we learn that Aisha's been hiding from her fellow clandestines. Uh, Najima has been searching for Aisha for uh, years, it seems like. And her plan is the same as it is present day. She wants to use the Bengal to return everybody home. They want to go back to their uh, the dimension they've been exiled from. Aisha's like, oh, the bangle, Yeah, um, I hit it uh, because, you know, there's all, the, there's all this, you know, there's all this movement of people, there's riots going on, a lot of chaos because of the independence movement. And, uh, you know, I got to look for it and i tell you what, I'll text you when I find it. I'll look <laughs> for it, okay? Uh, and I'll let you know. And then uh, Najima's like, you have until the end of day tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And that's when you better have it. Uh, Aisha goes back to Son and urges him to flee. It's time to go. We got to go. The riots are getting closer. I know this farmhouse has been in your family and you don't want to leave it. And it's really painful. Um, but you've got a growing family now. We have to do it. Uh, they hit the road. Aisha gives Sana the bangle for protection. The family heads off for the last train out of town. On the road, Hasan, who is, uh, uh, uses a cane, he's got an injured leg, uh, is struggling. He asks who Aisha was talking to out in the field. The other night, Aisha um, is like, okay, let me show you something. Shows Hassan the bangle, gives a, a very short demo of what it can do, which is basically like a little telescoping feature and it lights up.
2: It's, and like, then, it's very fancy. <laughs>
1: we learned through this process in this scene that Hassan, like many guys, is not a big. He has a lot to say about politics and stuff, but in terms of like like
2: mm-hmm.
1: deep questions with a partner has clearly not asked a lot of questions. This beautiful, gorgeous, intelligent woman showed up in his field one day with no past, not talking about where she's from or anything. And it's not until now, uh, apparently like one or two years later, because Sanaa is like a toddler, right? Mm -hmm. That he now begins to ask questions about, like real questions about, like, so this bagel, what's going on with this? Uh, I wanted wanted to uh, talk about something since it was just the 4th of July. As you know, Rosie, I do know I was as a as a as a member of, of, of our uh, of our extended family, our English cousin, Rosie, mm-hmm. uh, I've been thinking a lot about uh, about, the you know, it's like you often hear when people critique colonialism, you'll often hear like defenders of colonialism Whoa. say kind of tritely like, hey, sure, it wasn't ideal all the time. But look, like. India has the post office. They have this railway system. They have these beautiful harbors. Uh, They have this uh, parliamentary uh, system of government. They have like all these the civil service and all this stuff that's like very fleshed out. And that's because of the legacy that uh, English rule left there. And while it wasn't always great, look look at the positives that Mm -hmm. that left behind, Um, which like all that stuff is there because the English were there. That's true. At the same time, it's like uh, you know, the economics of colonialism it's it, it's different for many cases, and I'm by no means an expert, but I will say like the basics were the English and the English were not you know the Dutch were there, the Portuguese were there, there were France was there also. Um but the English came to dominate uh, uh India. The English system of colonialism was. They extract natural resources, gems, mm-hmm. you know, textiles, tea, etc., and take it very ch- for a very cheap price.
2: Or stolen. England.
1: Right. Or essentially, right? But but yeah. you know, like there's an investment of money to like to like go and send people there. Anyway, they extract the natural resources they send to England, where they produced finished goods that they would then sell to this captive market of India where they can't buy anything else. They have to buy stuff from, from England, right? So w- what you're basically looking at is – I mean you could call it theft – but on a massive, massive scale, like a huge oh, yeah. scale to the point where you need a railroad to transport all the stuff you're taking to the harbor and you need ships to take that home. And you need this massive like management system that becomes a civil service to, mm-hmm. to, to to keep track of all that stuff. And you need a postal service because you need to like be in communication with all these people who are extracting all this wealth out of there and then selling the finished goods and taking that wealth back also. And so, really, when, you, when people say, Oh, but look at the post office and look at all the railways and stuff, it's kind of like if I was a bank robber and I tunneled into a bank and I stole all the money. If I came back like.
2: Now there's a tunnel. 40,
1: 50 years later and said, <laughs> Oh, I noticed you made a, a subway out of the tunnel that I dug.
2: You're welcome. Yeah, no, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. I mean, it's. At, colonialism is like the most horrendous. And vile crime, and England is like one of its absolute worst perpetrators. Like it's so awful. And I just and it's it's kind of it's really strange as well, because like well, at least when I was in school, I don't think it's changed very much. They don't really teach you anything about it. Well, like they I mean, don't most, teach you most anything about partition. Most country- they don't they don't even do the version where it's like um th- well, at least where I went to school, which was like a a very like poor, working-class neighborhood yeah. where there was people from all over the world, like, they, a lot of whom came there because of what England had done to their countries during colonialism, um, and, like, because of colonialism. But, like, they didn't even do the version where they were like, we were, like, generous benefactors. They just, like, <laughs> skip over it because they know that even if you, like, scrape the tiniest bit of, uh, of it off, I think it's, like, in that way, like, Miss Marvel, by talking about partition and kind of generally even broaching this period, it's doing that thing that comic books have always done that we love, which is like using a story to tell like an analogous import, shine a light on like an important moment in history. But instead of doing it in a way that's analogous, they're actually just talking about it and setting it during this time. And like the creative team actually shared, Bisha Ali, I saw share it, um, this reading list they made. We can put it in the show notes of um, readings on partition. By all different kinds of people, it's like so, and I think it's like a really interesting, cool expansion of that, where they're not just saying like, "Oh, we wrote about this thing; you should go and learn about it." They're like, "Here are the things that helped us learn about it, and and now you and can too." So I, I'm is, glad that yeah. there are stories about this because yeah, just terrible. There's going to be there's going to be a
1: significant amount of people who learn about this of this event in this period of history in this part of the world because of the show, and I think that is mm-hmm. broadly positive. Um, uh, and you know, partition is, it is a, it is a subject of ongoing scholarship, like as you yes. speak, like it is been kind of overlooked, uh, both in the region and, and in the West in the region, because it's such a painful topic with like a lot of, uh, a lot of bad history attached to it. Yeah. Um, again, like millions died during yeah. this extremely violent and chaotic like event like it was bad
2: yeah and i um, think there's been really good um this is like a really nuanced topic like anything about this so there's been people is. who've who've loved this version of part of of the way miss marvel has represented it and feel like it's super representative and bringing this like moment a forgotten moment in history to life and there's been people who don't feel like it's actually representative of their experience at all so that's the notion of all of these things right yeah, It's the two sides of trying to tell let's, this I, huge story in like a 30-minute episode. Let's talk about that too
1: before we get back to the, the recap because this is another thing I've been thinking about a lot, which is uh, on Reddit and elsewhere, there's all these threads that are like um, uh, basically being like, I'm not a bigot. But Miss Marvel just doesn't speak to me. Here are the reasons why. Which and listen, certain people like things or they don't like things. There's absolutely yeah. nothing wrong with that. I, I will say that. I will say that. Like, and I'm not trying to speak for the uh, the uh, 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 Pakistani or Indian fans of the show or like you know pop culture fans in general. I'm speaking as a as a person of color who loves nerd shit. It mm-hmm. it feels a little like uh it feels a little weird when people are so loudly like well it doesn't speak to me considering oh. like you know as a as a no, again as like a nerd I'm, as a nerd of color like you just know you i have to i growing up and watching shows including now you basically have to eat what they make you you well, know like <laughs> there's no choice and so as when you were talking about like how the kind of obliquely talking about like the stakes for fans
2: Mm
1: -hmm. who are are looking to see their experiences mirrored in this show and are either satisfied or disappointed. I think that that is it just when there are so few opportunities to Mm -hmm. see something Mm -hmm. like that. All of a sudden it carries more weight. Like if this was like Peaky Blinders or something, right, Mm -hmm. and it's stiffed and people were like, well, fuck it. I don't, you know, I don't really care about like early 20th century uh, Anglo-Irish like (laughs) mafia shit. Am I being represented in this show about 1920s gangs? people would not you there would not be an uproar from the community that is looking to see themselves re- reflected mm-hmm. in that anglo-irish story because guess what you're going to get a million other anglo-irish mm-hmm. stories hundred, like you could go fucking watch boondock saints or something i don't know like that's <laughs> or the departed you know like there the, is it's yeah, like yeah, a, yeah. there's a, um, there's a million things but uh, you know boardwalk it, empire right there's but so if many you're
2: versions.
1: yeah it's like listen when uh when Crazy Rich, I've told this story before. I'll tell it again. Mm-hmm. When Crazy Rich Asians came out, I didn't like it. Okay. I did I the theme, the story is subject matter, very, very rich people doing very, very rich shit. It just doesn't speak to me. It's not my thing. At the same time, not knowing when we would get another major uh, Hollywood budget movie starring Asian people, and in fact, it would not be until years later, <laughs> Shang-Chi, The Legend of the Ten Rings. I was like not. I'm. I'm not going to be out there being like you know, uh, fuck this movie. I don't like it. I was just mm-hmm. not going to do that. Um, now, uh, was I like not speaking my mind? Yeah, but also like those are the those are the kind of um, issues that you have to weigh when you're just not used to seeing yeah. yourself or your stories reflected in Dude, the broader pop culture.
2: I, I think that's one of the. I think that's a really interesting and very very true balance that we all strike. I have yet to watch a Marvel movie focused solely around a solo female character that I have enjoyed or that has spoken to me. I was not a fan particularly of Captain Marvel, and I was not really a huge fan of Black Widow. But, you know, I love the MCU, and there's 25 movies or whatever and a million TV shows, so I can find different things that do speak to me. But again... I wasn't out here like, "boo, Captain Marvel," because you realize you're like, it took them ten years to do this anyway. It's it's and the way like, that they're doing it, like, sure, I would have rather that it was a Monica Rambeau movie, like that to me is the movie I wanted to see. But I'm gonna be stoked that this means a lot to people. Is, I, 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 yeah,
1: again, yeah. it's just like the 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 fullness of one's chest when when announcing that this the, a certain thing that stars. Mm-hmm. You know, a a, a South Asian cast uh, yep. that is culturally uh, Muslim, uh, religious. You know, that based on very uh, very uniquely based and heavily based on on Pakistani culture, uh, the the Muslim religion. To then go, well, this isn't speaking to me. It, it just strikes me saying, as a little.
2: I'm not saying. Anything, I'm not saying anything. But I'm also. I'm not saying it's a dog whistle, yeah, but I am saying that I think that it is very interesting to see the stories that that is said about. Nobody's like, oh, Captain America doesn't speak to me because I wasn't given yeah. a super soldier serum and turned into a super yes, soldier. That's a great no, point. It's like, this doesn't speak to you because most likely you're very used to being I, catered to. And I actually, I think that, these stories, they don't need to speak to you because there's so many. But also if the best thing about them is if you let yourself open up, maybe it will speak to it, you. I think it just will just give this it a, is a universal
1: story. Exactly. Thing,
2: you know, it's it's kind of it's like uh, if
1: if you're if we all live in this massive house together, right? And there's a hundred mm-hmm. pictures of the wall and a hundred of them are like people that look like you and then we change it so that like five of them are people that don't look like you uh maybe you'd be like oh yeah that's still but then if we get to like say 10 or 15 pictures out of the 100 Mm -hmm. now all of a sudden people are like well hold let's pump the brake we don't want to change this over and i think there's a lot of that going on not just about this show but in the broader culture okay back to the train station 1947 it is a Fucking mess, as one would expect. Um, Aisha, Hassan, and Sana push their way through the crowds. Um, but Aisha gets a, gets a feeling that something is amiss and she looks and she sees Najima through the crowd. So she breaks off because she's afraid Najma is about to attack. What if my husband and, and daughter are killed or innocent people are killed? And she, uh, she goes off to try and lure her away from her family. She's speaking to her, but then Najma's like, I don't want to hear it, and stabs Aisha and then walks
2: off. She's like, bye. <laughs> what the fuck? She takes advantage of the chaos. I mean, yeah. there's one place you can stab someone and walk <laughs> it off, it stabs is that the train station. Over.
1: That's brutal. He walks off. And meanwhile, Hassan has lo- lost track of uh, his daughter in this boiling mass of refugees. Uh Aisha is dying. She's looking at a photo of, of her and Hassan and Sana'a, like, standing in the field. And she says, uh, what you seek is seeking you. And then the bangle glows uh, and drops to the ground as Aisha is losing her strength. Um, and in that moment, as the bangle hits the ground, the portal opens, uh, which we saw open uh, elsewhere in present day Karachi. And Kamala arrives in 1947. She finds her great-grandmother dying but Aisha thinks Kamala is actually adult. Uh, It's not her daughter. Um, uh, And, and it's unclear actually that she actually gets who she is as she's dying. But she, she in her final moments asks uh, Kamala to save her family. And then she dies. Kamala finds her grandmother, her infant grandmother in the crowd and is about to use her light powers to like get them to walk above the crowd so they can get to the train. Uh, when, uh, we – there's like a – they're disrupted for a second and the Sna we see is infatuated with the light and can control it in some kind of way, is playing with it in a way that is unique. Um, Kamala is looking on at this in amazement and this light show allows Hassan to find his daughter. He, he sees the glow and he gets over to it and he finds her. Uh uh, we're going to talk about what this means for time travel in a second. Uh, <laughs> then the, uh, the bangle glows and Kamala is transported back to present day Karachi, where uh, the, uh, a portal is opening to uh, the newer dimension. Here is Najma. She's about to watch her plans come to fulfillment. They're about to be able to, to go home. But as the clandestines touch the veil, they die. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, one of one of Najma's number, uh, Faria touches it and turns to bone and ash. Kamala tries to shoot light at the veil to close it. Red Dagger comes up, is like, "I'll help by evacuating." Like, all oh, there's a bunch of civilians in the area. This took place like in a in a market area of of Karachi. Uh, it starts evacuating people, and Kamala is like, "You get, to Najima, she's like, you got to help me close this thing, like." Uh, I, I understand, like, you want to go home, all this stuff, but we could we could lose everything. Uh, and they have it out right there. And then finally Najima's like, okay, I get it. Like, mm-hmm. I, I I agree. And I know how to close the veil. And she steps forward and touches it and she dies. Uh, and the veil seals just as Najima's powers are transferred across the world to Kamran over in you know, Jersey City. As the, the veil closes... <laughs> Muniba and Sana, the adult, elderly Sana, walk up just in time as it's all over. It's all over, <laughs> and they show up later. Uh, Sana shows Kamala pictures of her mom uh, when she was her age. Muniba was a huge fan of Bon Jovi, which we already know. Sanaa. and and there's this really like wonderful mothers and daughters scene, generationally of of Sana and Muniba rebuilding their relationship through their relationship with Kamala, which I just found to be wonderful. Mm-hmm. Like, this is what this show does well, is stuff like this. Like, really well.
2: The actor who plays Maniba is just so brilliant. And, like, they, the writing team does something I really love this episode, where it would have been really easy to have this episode introduce more conflict. But instead, Maniba sees Kamala using her powers, realizes what her mother, Sana, was saying was true, and just apologizes. And then they're just yeah. like a team. And I thought that was really nice because that's the right thing. And and Maniba yes. is so impressed when she realizes that Kamala's a superhero, which I thought was like really cute. She doesn't tell her off or anything. She's just like, wow. And yeah. I, I just, I really like that. And I think this is like a very low-key, no one cares about it apart from me theory. But from the beginning of the show, I thought they were establishing a space where, like, Maniba would design Kamala's superhero costume. And I do think after this episode that that's what we'll see next week, which I think is just so cute. Another X-ray
1: vision prediction. Get ready, (laughs) folks. (laughs) That that one's
2: on the low stakes, but full of heart. Full of heart.
1: Back in Jersey City, Bruno is at work at the store uh, when Kamran uh, uh, waylays him in the alley as he's taking out trash. Kamran's like, I need your help. Uh, and the two, of course, make a very awkward pair. Uh, <laughs> Kamran being Kamala's kind of crush, Kamala being Bruno's one hundred percent definite crush. Uh, and it gets st- even more awkward <laughs> when Kamran admits that he thought Bruno's name was Brian. For the mm-hmm. time. <laughs> He's been calling him that like a lot. <laughs> have you? I, I will say, like, as a person who's bad with names, that I have done. I've got a system now, but I've, like, had numerous encounters you, with people. You were feeling where represented.
2: Like,
0: fuck, where
1: it's like, <laughs> fuck, I 100% should know this person's name by now. Yeah. It's ridiculous that I don't I mean, know it. And I need to fe- figure out how to figure it out.
2: In Cameron's defense, like, every time they've met, it's been, like, a life-threatening situation. Yeah, has been a lot Ooh, going been, on. he's been, like, trying to introduce his immortal gin mother to... <laughs> <laughs> Kamala, who may or may not be related to him, like, yeah, yeah. It, you know, Bruno, I feel like in this case, he could, he does a good job, but he just like makes a joke about it. Because I'm like, truly, yeah. Bruno, get over it. Like, and they do, so good for them.
1: They do get, so they go uh, up to Bruno's apartment and uh, Kamran is like, listen, um, I, I need to stay put because uh, my mom needs to come back and find me. He doesn't know that Najima's dead. Uh, and as they are just kind of discussing their next move, they look out the window and they see one of those damage control Stark drones like <laughs> lurking outside. And Kamran uses his, cland- his new uh, clandestine powers to knock the drone down, and we are on to the season finale of of Miss Marvel. Um, yeah,
2: after the drone blows up the circle queue where Bruno works. So let's, okay, here's
1: my, uh, this is, we were talking about this offline. Okay, so, Endgame established an MCU time travel structure by which, right, it's not like Looper or the Terminator, where you go back in time, and if... I find past you and I cut off their hand, all of a sudden, you know, like uh, back to the future, your hand falls mm-hmm. off or, you know, or you f- fade out of a picture. What happens is if you change something, it starts a whole new timeline and that timeline goes on.
2: So, Unless you change it back,
1: which is what happened in Endgame. Unless you change it back. But even then we can parse it. We can parse that because I think it's interesting to parse. But so what happened here is... <laughs> uh is Kamala's grandmother's life was apparently saved uh by Kamala who time traveled back because of the dropped bangle to 1947 to reunite her grandmother with her great-grandfather mm-hmm. so that she could be raised and then so her mother could be born and so then she could eventually be born. And then go back and save. And then go back and save it again. So the way it is implied in the show and, and the way that um that Marvel's official recap written, written by mm-hmm. uh, Marvel editor Rachel Page makes it seem is that it's like a back-to-the-future Terminator uh... style closed time loop where Kamala has always gone back and will always go back and has always gone back. We would imagine infinite times before this, Mm -hmm. she has done this exact thing and nothing can change it. Is it that, or is it like the end game thing where she went back and either a started an alternate timeline. So Kamala one, the bangle is dropped goes back through the portal, saves her grandmother, creating an alternate timeline in which Kamala 2 does the same thing, starting a new timeline in which Kamala 3, you know, like, (laughs) is it that? I would like like it to be that version. Or is it still like Endgame, but because, now here is where it gets, this is a little tricky, but like, so in Endgame, right, the, you know, the stuff that they stole, they put back a second later. <laughs> yeah. Now, I would argue that you're still changing things. You're killing bacteria. You're Absolutely. moving things inches. The world is still changing. You're countering people on the way there. Maybe somebody uh, is uh, two seconds later. Uh, uh, Tony to meets because, like his own dad. Yeah. Like there's a bunch of stuff, right? I, I, the, the timeline is significantly like what? you're playing with stuff. And it still remained the same, right? So maybe what happened, so the alternate version of the endgame version is that uh, Hassan was always going to find Sanaa. He was really not that far from her, right? He was calling Mm -hmm. her name. He was always going to find her. They were always going to get on the train together. And this is the first time that uh, Kamala has done this thing where she goes back to the past. But she actually didn't significantly change anything. She was just there. Nobody actually saw her except her grandmother who doesn't remember. And so therefore nothing changed and no timeline was branched.
2: I think so. I think it is a closed Terminator time loop. I also think... I think that that is what they intend for it to be. I think it is. But I do think that... So I will say after Endgame, yeah, like much of many of us, I tried to understand the end game time travel logic. I wrote an uh, article at Esquire breaking it all down, right? It is very much a narratively... It's a due ex machina style dis- decision. I, I, like, I, it, it, it's something they created for the show that the Russo brothers have regularly changed or contradicted in, like, answers since. I, So I don't know how, like, tight it is when you really think about it, because like you said, like, if you're taking the stones, but then you're putting them back, that allegedly would stop the timeline That's, and make it the same, but it, how come then Steve Rogers can go back and live an entirely right. different life, entirely change the timeline? That doesn't make any sense. Also, Steve, I got lots of beef with you. Well, about l- that listen, choice
1: same and the here, things but, that you didn't do. But uh, what I will uh, the say same is here, I, if, I will say that Steve one hundred percent must have created another timeline. Yeah, no question. That. Absolutely, there's no question. There's another timeline now and, because of he was there yeah, for years, literally like <laughs> ninety
2: years. Like, and okay, so one thing I will say. I don't know how this would work. But if we look at the Infinity Gems, in, it, when the Ancient One talks about it, I think they say that the Infinity Gems essentially, um, they like stabilize the timeline that they're in, right? And mm-hmm. that's why you've got to put them back to not separate off a timeline. What if the bangle in its artifact nature... Stabilizes the timeline. So the fact that, like it gets dropped and Kamala finds it, that's the thing they're always putting back. I, it's I, like I, as long as the bangle is the the thing that is there, that timeline stays the same, even if it's like I, a closed time loop. I thought about that too.
1: And I thought about, like, if that is what it is, and I think that is heavily suggested, right? Therefore, it it's this written in stone event mm-hmm. Kamala's always going to do this I think that there's a world in which like much like hiding in apocalypse in the loki show hides you from the eyes of the TVA um there's a world in which like some time traveling figure who 100% wants to know the safest place in the universe to hide out in or to hide something you know because we've seen in comics and various other stories where you hide you know you you yeah. magically hide something you can shrink it down hide it in a person mm-hmm. you know like or magically hide it in a person if you wanted to hide something or or find out where the safest place like in the multiverse almost is, it is right next to Kamala Khan who cannot in die. In that time
2: loop. She yeah.
1: is immortal during this. Th- there is no so the- way that anything bad can happen. Unless- she is unkillable during this time
2: the thing i find most interesting about it from her
1: baby from being born even her parents like the entire time that they come to the states nothing can happen to them that will stop them from having this child you could you could hide some magically something within their (laughs) forms that could never be found or destroyed or anything because they 100% must do
2: this. Yeah, that's the thing I find most interesting about this choice is like, one, I feel like it's like it's really interesting. And I, I, I felt like it was very evocative at the end of last episode where we knew that once she got there, that it was going to be her. The Trail of Stars, right? But like, it does really remove Kamala from the ground level superhero thing, which is the which is what she always was, was this kind of ground-level Spider-Man-style superhero. But what I think is really interesting about this is like, usually when we see these stories, it's because somebody is doing something to put that timeline in danger, which is like back to the future. You're going to be erased. Something's going to happen that means you're going to be erased or, you know, Terminator. Something's going to happen and you need to do something to stop the timeline from being disrupted so you can still be here to stop it. It's also the most recent series of Umbrella Academy gets into this idea of like a yeah. grandfather paradox for everything to keep going. What is really interesting about this is that is not what happened in this series. There was never a threat to it. What we were seeing was just Kamala learn about it for the first time, which is more right. of like a Bill and Ted logic almost. It's I find it very interesting because it raises a lot of questions and I feel like they are questions that were probably like, oh, we'll answer that in a couple of movies or right. something. I, my hot take
1: is that if it indeed is this closed loop destiny thing, eventually they're going to wreck on this mm-hmm. just because... And this is like takes us out of like the interior uh, reality of the story and it's more of like a taste thing for me personally, which it, which is this negates Kamala's hero's journey in her agency. It was always going to happen, so it kind of doesn't matter any of the choices she made because she was always going to end up in this place, which is why as messy and as kind of deus ex machina as the endgame uh, – system of time travel is, I actually like it because it makes the choices matter. Yeah. What I think, you choose to do when mm-hmm. you go back in time actually matters because you're trying to accomplish a goal that isn't set in stone. That's yeah. like very in flux.
2: I think the argument, okay, so this is like, I've been thinking about this a lot because I think you're totally right. And I also think it's, uh, there was a really great piece that somebody at Nerdist, uh, I think it was Mariam, wrote about the connection between Kamala and the djinn. And kind of like what that really means in, in, in Western storytelling and the kind of Orientalist history of that kind of stuff. I don't necessarily love the idea that Kamala is the one who gets the preordained history, the mm-hmm. preordained fate. It feels, like you said, like it could take away some of that agency. What I will say, one, I'm very interested to see what happens next episode because it feels like every loose end has been tied up.
1: Yeah. So I want to know. to know.
2: I want to know. But the one thing I will say you know what we see here that happens at the end that seemingly we don't know if it would have happened before because the big change here comes. Essentially, Kamala, the the difference in this version is that Kamala makes her family come together, but with an honesty about, and and a truth of like what happened and Sana wasn't imagining things, you know? And I think like that, might be the journey that they were on which in a way again brings it back to street level but I do find it very interesting because like maybe that happens in every time loop maybe they yeah. always end up there but I think Sunna kind of hints at the idea that they didn't I also think with any time travel story and we talked it, about it, this there's literally yeah there's, there's literally no every time travel there's, story there's, <laughs> also you know what every time travel story anyone who writes a time travel story this is what they want you to do Oh, they time traveled and that's yeah, yeah. it. They well, never I mean, want like, you to think about this stuff. They it, never want you to think about time loops or paradoxes. It's like that
1: It's like that scene in Looper and yeah. Diner where uh, the two versions of the same character are like, listen, if we start talking about how it works, we're going to have uh, straw wrappers <laughs> as diagrams and we're going to be here for three hours. We're going to go yeah. in circles. Let's not like, even it's, talk about it.
2: <laughs> it's my favorite thing is like, what's everyone's favorite? My favorite is like, which kind of... This is kind of like it, but they don't get into the power of it, which is like, I like the Bill and Ted style, which is if you know you can travel into the future or the past, you can think of anything and it comes true. And that kind of, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So at the end of Bill and Ted, they'll say like, oh, you know, we're going to trap you in a cage and the cage falls down from the sky. At the end of this, when we defeat you, we'll be able to prepare this, this, and this. I like it. I like it kind of like you can use it almost as a magical power because anything that you say you're going to do in the future you've already done. And this is kind of like that, but reversed. But For, we never uh, really see the power impact. Yeah. yeah, it's. I'm so interested to see what happens in the finale because I feel like it's either going to be very intimate, which this show has kind of been, but has strayed away from in the last couple of episodes. Like the first two episodes of this season are still some of my favorite MCU That's what I wonder. We're going to get the big, big showdown with Damage Control. Yeah. My hope for that, this is not a theory, this is a wish. And I don't think it's going to happen. My hope for that is, like, I hope that this version of Damage Control just gets absolutely decimated at the end of the finale. I I do not like Damage Control as, like, the MCU's version of, like, Ice. I like Damage Control as, like, weird... They're just like a building company that fixes stuff after they get broken. I hope that this is a... Is why I think that that is not going to go away. (laughs) I know,
1: and why I think it's actually a little interesting. If I didn't love the way they did it in episode four, we now have robots that look for powered people, run by run by a government agency that is openly antagonistic towards mm-hmm. powered people to the point where the rank and file are even just shitty to to yeah. the people that they have in their in their uh, uh, jails. It feels I mean, we're st- like. The Sentinels are here, like it's yeah, it's I was happening gonna say, I love now. how you can always it's bring it happening happening back to right X-Men. Now. Okay. It just I- feels I'm like that's you- it. Like, we already... No, you're so we it. Right. Like, here here are, the, here are the autonomous drones that are looking for yeah. poor people. They're, they're okay. doing it right now.
2: So I'm going to ask you, one, I think you're right, and I think it's very I think likely... This, I think this
1: is the Sentinel... I think yeah, this I and, think, Sword and I think merge, and we get the Sentinel program. I think it's very likely- there somewhere.
2: I think it's very likely that next week, in the finale, here's the outrageous prediction, but I think you're right. I think next week... Somebody might even call it a Sentinel drone or something, a Stark Sentinel. Also, I'm going to ask you a second question because this just came to my mind. It's completely bonkers, but I feel like it's quite likely now you've brought this up. So we know that all of this misuse of Stark technology is going to play into armor wars, right? But they have kept very quiet about what armor wars is going to be about. And we know that Rhodey's going to be in it. But do you think that if that's the case... Armor Wars takes on a more important role in like introducing Sentinels and the notion of like like, X-Men style oppression of powered people. And that's what Rhodey is fighting against is the use of Stark tech for Sentinel technology. I think that that's on the table.
1: And I had another thought about, just as I was re-watching this episode and being like, holy shit, like we're doing it. Like these are, I know it's very, very, very early days, but this is basically what the Sentinel program is. We've we've often talked. We've talked ad nauseum for anybody <laughs> listening to this about how could they do it? How do they bring the Dexmen in? How is it going to be? Uh, because of Westfield? Is it mm-hmm. going to be because of uh, because of the blip? Is it going to be interdimensional? Are they already here? Or is it magic? Um, and. I think there's a world in which you program, right, uh, using Stark Tech, you program these autonomous uh, robots who get smarter and smarter and smarter in learning how to detect people. And all of a sudden they go, oh, wait, there's a bunch of them here in upstate New York mm-hmm. we just, that we found yeah, that nobody knew about that have been like underground. This They've already done it with the Eternals. Yeah. And maybe they wouldn't do it exactly like that again. But I do think that that is a doorway they could walk through if they wanted to, where this increasingly powerful sentinel system Mm -hmm. discovers mutants. And just to backtrack for one second in this is going to seem like an aside, but I swear it isn't In (laughs) Captain America Winter Soldier. Right. There's that uh, there's the scene where, uh, you know, they take uh, Cap and Nat. And take Sitwell to the roof, right? And they throw him off, and then Sam brings him back, and all of a sudden he spills. And he's like, "Yeah, you know, we've uh, this algorithm. It's looking for power for people who yes, are gonna be threats. Stephen, uh, you Strange. Know, Stephen Strange is one of them, right? How the fuck did the algorithm know that Stephen Strange was up to uh, Stephen Strange was up to literally nothing at that time? So, recon. <laughs> well, definitely retcon because that was like an Easter egg to get people excited. At the same time. How does how does comic book storytelling work? How does Mm -hmm. ongoing storytelling work? It works because creators look back and they go, here's a weird thing. I wonder if I can blow this up and make this something. In the interior reality of the MCU, there was already a computer eight years ago that was predicting who would be powered threats. So, like in the interior reality of the MCU, this technology already exists. No, I think it's very possible that it could that. Much like Jasper Sidwell knew that Dr. Mm -hmm. Strange was going to be a player years before he would ever be a player. Maybe there's this ongoing uh, project that eventually will discover people who are not even on the radar right now and that are in this world.
2: Also, I think, you're, so I think you're absolutely right. I can't believe you've turned me back on. To the, I, I'm like <laughs> such a Dwayne McDuffie stan that every week I'm like watching this and I'm just like, damage control would never. But you're right. Once you bring the X-Men into it, I'm like, oh, this is actually very interesting. I think you're right as well because what have they been doing? The whole time that they've been doing this thing that I talk about every week, so get ready to hear it again. I've been thinking it's about Secret Wars, but I think maybe it is about introducing the X-Men because what they've done in every single movie in this phase, Shang-Chi. You know, what was there? Oh, it's a secret group of people you've never known about who are not on the radar, who have a certain way of fighting. Miss Marvel. Oh, there's this whole secret hidden group of people who live behind the veil in a hidden world. Maybe that they have some secret powers you don't know about. They're setting up this idea that all around us are these worlds of powered people that we do not know. And the Eternals is another one, you know, and that that very much took on a kind of almost Inhumans-esque storytelling of like, they've been here for so long. So it really would fit in with what they're doing to introduce an enclave. Also, we've talked about this before, but like Professor Xavier and or Jean Grey, either of them is powerful enough to essentially use their psychic powers to stop people knowing about them.
1: They're very, very adept at doing that.
2: Tune into this space to
1: find out if we're right. And if we're not, just forget it. (laughs) (laughs) We've never said Sentinels. We've never said that. (laughs) Up next, Thor, Love and Thunder.
0: You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Oh, spooked too soon. Jane?
1: Folks, we're stepping off the goat boat into the shadow realm to break down Thor Love and Thunder, which is in theaters now. Directed, of course, by Taika Waititi, written by Taika Waititi and Jennifer Robinson, produced by Kevin Feige and Brad Winderbaum, and starring all of our favorite people once again. We open somewhere in space. Our friend Korg is narrating the story to date. Uh, After the events of Avengers Endgame and the victorious fight to undo uh, Thanos' snap, Thor went to space to just get healthy. Mm -hmm. It didn't just mean losing weight. It means his mental health. It means his physical health. He just wants to feel better about himself. And that's what he went to space to do with his friend Korg. And it took a while, but with some dedication, a healthier outlook, some exercise— some regular meditation Mm -hmm. and of course the company of his now very close friends, the guardians of the galaxy Thor becomes fitter, a more at peace, former God of thunder. Uh, We find Thor and the guardians in the process of evicting some rodent, alien bandits from a temple that they have uh, occupied and, uh, and stolen essentially from a native population. Uh, In the end, Thor uh, does find it necessary to destroy the temple, to liberate it, and the indigenous population are are more or less pleased. They would prefer not to talk about the fact that the temple is destroyed, but they are kind (laughs) of thankful. Um, And it's very clear from this that adventures such as these— have been a regular thing for the Guardians and Thor who have been at this for a while, this kind of, this kind of adventuring, these kind of fights mm-hmm. where the Guardians are fighting and then Thor, as the big gun, comes in with his own catchphrase. Uh, but now Thor has a new mission, uh, and that is to hunt down the god butcher that slayed the gods of this planet. Speaking of uh, that god butcher, in the past— Long, long, long ago in some far off world, Gore and his daughter are staggering through an endless desert, and they are praying to their gods, who, it turns out, have abandoned not only Gore and his daughter, but their entire people.
2: We should probably mention his daughter dies. We don't we didn't explicitly say right, it.
1: Right. His daughter passes away in the desert. Gore finds the garden of his people's god. Turns out he's a pretty petty uh, person, very vindictive, not at all caring about the people who worship him. Uh, and Gore comes to this beautiful garden in the moments right after his god had killed some creature who was wielding the Necro Sword, which is an ancient blade uh, made of symbiote stuff that is capable of killing gods. Uh, th- this god is like you know i don't care about you i don't care about your people uh, we'll, i'll get more people that's how it works so you're annoying and i'm going to kill you now uh, and as the god is about to kill gore the necrosword chooses gore as its next wielder and gore slays this god and right then and there dedicates his life as the wielder of the necrosword to killing all gods everywhere across the universe Back to uh, Thor and our friends. Uh, Thor and Korg say goodbye to the Guardians. Uh, They are getting ready to leave uh, this planet. The natives of the planet are like, oh, thank you for uh, saving slash destroying our temple. We'd like to give you this gift of two huge goats that scream all the time (laughs) uh, as a thank you, but clearly also because we want to get rid of them. And Thor is like, thank you so much. I love these goats. I will name them Toothnasher and Toothgrinder. Uh, they then travel to a, a snowy world, Korg and Thor do, where, uh, because they got a, a message from Sif. And there they find uh, a dead god, a huge dead god, this dragon-like god that we saw in the trailer, uh, Faligar, the Behemoth, uh, has been slain by Gore, the God Butcher. And there in the field of war in front of Falagar is our good friend, the warrior Sif who is grievously injured and has had her arm cut off. And she sees Thor. She's like, Oh my God, thank God, Thor. It's you. I died in battle. Look at me. Like the, uh, I'm going to Valhalla. This is awesome. This is what Asgardian warriors dream about is dying in battle and going to Valhalla. And I'm about to go. And it's great to see your face in the moments before I go. And Thor is like, the battle is like long over. If you die now, you actually won't go to Valhalla. So sorry to spoil that for you. It's Sif's like, fuck! <laughs> so then Sif is like, okay, then just take me back to wherever you're going. They grab Sif and they buy Frost back to Earth. Meanwhile, back on Earth, our good friend Dr. Jane Foster is now a successful public intellectual and the author of a, uh, a very influential and successful book about physics... Uh unfortunately, she's also in the fight of her life against cancer. Uh her friend and former assistant, Darcy Lewis, uh, is there to kind of like support her through this. Uh, we recently saw Darcy, of course, uh taking part in the government response to the Westview incident in Wandavision. Uh, she's there to support her friend Jane, but of course, Jane's cancer is stage four, uh, which is the final stage. Uh Darcy at her wit's end, contacts their old friend, the brilliant Dr. Eric Selvig, who of course has been with us uh, since Thor and the Avengers and etc. And he agrees also that, I, you know, he just doesn't know. He's not a medical doctor, but he looks at the scans and looks at the data and says, I'm not sure what we can do for Jane. But one day Jane hears a voice calling her to New Asgard. It is the voice of Mjolnir, much like in the comics. We find out that Mjolnir has some sort of some sort of consciousness now. Uh, Thor's hammer forged from the magical Yuru by the power of Odin himself. And then we need to back up here because we get a flashback about what Jane and Thor had been up to between Thor, the Dark World, and Ragnarok. So after the events of Dark World, Thor and Jane moved in together, very much in love. So deep and pure was their love for each other that it actually imprinted itself into Mjolnir, Their love became like a a magical spell, but as often happens, Jane and Thor grew apart They started arguing a little bit, hanging out different places, and then eventually they broke up Uh, unhappily, but they did do so. But the magic of their bond remained imprinted on Mjolnir now. Back to the present, Jane, desperately sick. She travels to New Asgard in Norway, where the pieces of Thor's hammer are kept like under a little dome. They're immovable, of course, unless you're worthy enough to move them. Uh, That is the very place where they fell after Hela crushed them uh, in the opening act of Thor Ragnarok. And then Jane comes, and then the pieces assemble themselves uh, into the hammer, which Jane, as the worthy wielder of Mjolnir, lifts, thus becoming worthy of the power of Thor. In New Asgard, uh, we see that King Valkyrie's reign has been great. It's actually been pretty good. Like, it's very, very peaceful. And on the economic front, things are going great. It's a tourist destination. People are coming through all the time. Uh, It it appears that they have a kind of like Norwegian style, European style, like healthcare and uh, system because everybody seems very well taken care of and everything's great. Unfortunately, it is also very, very boring. King Valkyrie is has to sit through endless meetings all day, and she's bored by this. Our friend Meek, at least, seems very satisfied in their role as a member of the king's cabinet. Uh, but overall, King Valkyrie is uh, is a little like, is this all there is to life? Thor, Korg, and the goats arrive back in New Asgard. And the very night they arrive, gore strikes. Because this is the next target on his list. He's killing gods. He wants to kill the gods in New Asgard. King Valkyrie, Thor, and and whoa, Mighty Jane Foster, fight. The the minions of Gore and repel them, but unfortunately the God Butcher also escaped with like two dozen Asgardian kids. Among them Heimdall's son Axel, named for Axel Rose, apparently, who has similar powers to his late father, but hopefully is better at using them, unlike Heimdall, who missed every single fucking threat in every movie he was ever in. I rest my case. That's enough about Heimdall. I won't speak That's Ill why him he's dead. Yeah, I won't let's not speak ill of him. Heimdall, you did a bad job, but let's move on. It just we love you, though. <laughs> love you. Now, through Axel's powers, Thor is able to uh, basically astral project to where Axel is. They find out through uh, the kids that Gore is heading to or hanging out at the Shadow Realm. And so, Thor. King Valkyrie and uh, my Jane Foster are like, okay, we, we need to we need to go there and stop Thor and rescue the kids. Um, now, Thor, King V, Jane, and Korg, that's a good start, but we need more. They need an army. So mm-hmm. Thor is like, I know where we can get one. Let's go to Omnipotent City, which is like the Las Vegas of the gods. <laughs> <laughs> Supposedly they're there like, doing god governmental work, but they're never Mm -hmm. doing that. Uh, At at Omnipotent City, Zeus is, like, the big daddy rock star of all the 616 gods. He holds sway there, and he's pretty much like a dirtbag whose current calling is fucking and drinking his way through the anxiety of the ongoing gore menace. Zeus very aggressively does not want to help Thor, And is in fact terrified of gore. And would prefer to just hide here in a city having orgies and drinking wine and not doing anything. So that's your answer, Thor. Take it or leave it. Our heroes decide that's not good enough. They uh, fight Zeus. In the course of the fight, Korg is turned to rubble. Very, very scary moment here where I was like, oh, fuck, Korg is dead.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. They definitely want you to think that. Thor thinks that. Thor thinks that. My
1: whole movie theater thought it and was very, very bummed out for a Mm -hmm. little while. Don't worry. Korg uh, is—I'm not going to say okay, but Korg is alive. At the end of the fight, though, Zeus has a big old hole blown in his chest thanks to his own lightning bolt Mm -hmm. uh, weapon, which our heroes take for themselves because that's the only backup they have, and now they're down Korg, so they need all the help they can get. In the course of the argument and fight with Zeus in an omnipotent city, uh, our heroes realize that Gore's endgame is to reach Eternity, who is like a genie at the center of the universe. You can think of him as as essentially. And if you reach Eternity, whoever can get there, no one's ever gotten there. But if you can get there, uh, Eternity will grant you one Reality altering wish, and we can assume that if Gore gets there, his wish is all gods be dead and mm-hmm. there will be a genocide of gods across the universe. Okay, meanwhile, Jane's cancer, which has never truly banished, much like in the comics, reasserts itself. Now, while Jane is holding Mjolnir, she has the power of Thor, but it comes at a price because it weakens her defenses, makes her weaker. When she's not holding Mjolnir and thus speeding her towards her death, Jane begins to weaken dramatically after our heroes fight Gore in the Shadow Realm. Uh, It's clear that she cannot continue. Thor is heartbroken at just the thought of losing Jane. Here their love has been rekindled and now he's about to lose her before he can even get to spend time with her again. Uh, Jane, to Thor's relief, goes back to Earth to basically wait out her final hours. This is some of the best stuff in this movie. The the Jane Thor stuff. It's crazy that like 10 years after, mm-hmm. you know, after the first Thor movie, we're now like paying off this relationship in a way that feels like really great.
2: Definitely. And I think something they do that's really heartbreaking but amazing in this is like they they really make it very explicit that the reason that Thor and Jane's relationship failed is because they both loved each other so much that they started to put up walls because they were yeah. terrified of losing each other. And then yeah. in this moment where Thor is reunited with Jane and they and they share this honesty and they're both holding the mantle of Thor and they say, well, Thor says, you know, I, I don't want to be scared of that anymore. I want to be with you. And Jane's like, well, I've got cancer. And Thor's like, look, I'm not doing this. I love you. Go and stay in the hospital. Like yeah. we will sort this out, but don't you be picking up that hammer again. And it's don't like, it. it's so it's so well done, and I I love the relationship in this, and I totally understand why this is the movie wh- where Natalie Portman came back. Like Jane gets so much great stuff here, not just like heroically, but also emotionally.
1: There's also Thor's. Well, the other thing I liked about it how, is how it built on Thor's again very. Dude, like, inability to access, like, his feelings of hurt and pain. You know, we Mm -hmm. saw it in Thor the Dark World. Yeah. We saw the way he responded to his mom's death. We saw the way he responded to, to the events of Infinity War and the opening of Endgame where he's just like a shattered Person unable to grapple with his failure to save his mother, unable to grapple with their, his and the Avengers' failure to save half the living things in the entire universe. Mm -hmm. And he's just crushed by this. And here, even again, as he's urging Jane to go home and like, and seek medical care and stop picking up this hammer that is uh, making her powerful, but at the same time making the cancer more powerful. Um, he's also in this very very human way. He is unable to like acknowledge that Jane will die. Mm-hmm. Like he he's still holding in a in again a very human way, as anybody who's like ever. Dealt with somebody having like a like an illness like this. Yeah, it's like oh, you got to fight. Like you, you mm-hmm. can't keep doing. You have mm-hmm. to go home, and you know, like the, you can fight for every day, and we can spill and and Thor still has that. That is where Thor's mind is at. He yeah. has not even begun to accept that he could lose Jane, and and mm-hmm. it, and it's really humane and heartbreaking. Um. Thor tracks Gore and the kids to the Temple of Eternity and we get this great moment where... <laughs> it's like so one Thor of my, maybe
2: my favorite MCU fight ever. It's just like, like so like why, targeted
1: at me. This is why Taiga is great because he balances just fun and creativity and wacky humor with epic action and real like emotional mm-hmm. weight. So... Thor, uh, he's he's with the kids and he has them all pick up something that they can use as a weapon. Some have like a stuffed animal. Others have picked up like some stick that they found or a rock or a brick or whatever. And then much like Odin did <laughs> centuries ago, Thor uh, bestows for a limited time only his power on all these Asgardian kids. So, that together they are wielding the power of Thor and they open a huge can of whoop ass on Gore, who, despite getting molly whopped all around the temple, does manage to break through to eternity and crawl through to make his wish. So, the kids are fighting uh, uh, Gore's shadow monsters, the Black Berserkers. Thor is fighting Gore, but steadily losing. And just in the moment where it seems like Thor is about to get. His head cut off by the Necrosword. Jane shows up and beats Gore's fucking ass. Unfortunately, the Bifrost does manage to drill through to the realm of eternity while all of this is going on. And Jane has spent the very last of her strength. And so uh, Gore goes through to eternity. Jane dies in Thor's arm, heartbreakingly turning to gold dust and, and drifting away. Thor confronts gore right in front of eternity in this water realm that looks like something it it honestly looks like one of the boss fights from elden ring that's it looked beautiful
2: so what happens They, they go through to eternity and gore is gonna both of them and he but thor says i'm gonna like fuck you you won wish make your wish i'm gonna Spend the last moments with the woman that I love, and he's like, "You could do the same. You could bring back your daughter." Oh, that's and what then it was. and then that's Gore it. says, and then Gore is like, "Um, he's like, but she'd be alone." And just before Jane dies, she's like, "No, she wouldn't." And that's like, and that's when they make the agreement, or whatever, that Thor's going to raise his kid.
1: <laughs> and that's what that's what happens. So uh, uh, Gore passes away, but not before, with tears in his eyes, he sees that his daughter has come back to life. And uh, it's clear by the very fact that she now exists once again that he accepts that this girl will be entrusted in Thor's care. We flash forward. Korg narrates his relationship with, uh, with another Cronin. It turns out that all Cronins are male and uh, this Cronin, Dwayne, uh, he's fallen in love with him and all Cronins uh, to procreate, they go into the heart of a volcano where they hold hands and then create a baby. And so together they do this and they father a beautiful Cronin child. As the film ends... Korg still narrating. We see that Thor stayed true to his word. He and the girl, now named Love, together they are known as Love and Thunder, are adventuring amongst the stars, as Thor has been doing with the Guardians of the Galaxy to open the film, and just doing good across the galaxy, and we close with this big, splashy uh, uh, logo of Love and Thunder, and in that, which is like a really cool surprise to realize that, oh— this is like weirdly this entire movie weirdly is like a prequel mm-hmm. to the love and thunder relationship yep. that is Thor and his daughter love his, uh, yeah
2: I, I love this so much and also something that's really cool is like we can get into it a bit deeper later but in the the first established notion of Thor having a daughter was in the next Avengers. Uh, yes, movie from 2008, Next Avengers: Heroes of Tomorrow, and in that she's called Torin, and Torin means Thor's love. So I think like they're like kind of continuing that tradition here, which I think is really cool.
1: Uh, that uh, Torin is the daughter of Thor and Sif. Yes, who throughout the comics and a little bit in the movies have had it on again, off again, on again, off again, on again, off again relationship <laughs> all throughout time in the comics. Much more, you know, it's like pretty much like Sif has a crush on Thor Mm -hmm. and Thor occasionally reciprocates, but mostly doesn't. Um, So we go to our first stinger. We see Zeus. He is pissed. He's got a hole in his chest. It's mending, but he's still got this big hole in his chest. And uh, he's got one of his servants that's looking after it. He is talking about Thor and how Thor... uh, did all this stuff and put a, punched a hole through his chest and how he was happy just kind of like chilling out and up nipping in city, drinking wine. But now he's, he's back to being the vengeful god that he always was and he's mad and he wants to strike back. And I'm talking to you, my son. Are you going to be the instrument of my vengeance? And the camera pans over and it's his son, Hercules, who's like,
2: yep, I'm going to do it. And also, who is? Can we just say Brett Goldstein from Ted it is Lasso? Brett in from in Ted one Lasso. of the most shocking castings of all time, and I am so excited to see him get Marvel buff because you have to be buff. They CGI have him, to here, be, but you have to be buff. They did CGI him.
1: Did they CGI Hemsworth? Because I got to say, some of those lats looked nah, unreal. Like I Hemsworth, don't even know
2: the Marvel diet, as cameo spoke about, is yeah. a. A truly terrifying thing, and 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 it they I think before they make these movies they're probably not allowed to drink water for like two days because they have <laughs> to have that muscle definition that comes only from dehydration. But I wouldn't be, I mean, Thor's a god, so a little bit of CG would, uh, it would make sense. But yeah, Brett, very CG, understandably, Hercules is Hercules, a mammoth man. Hercules is
1: here, baby. Now, of course, Hercules, Hercules and Thor. Yes. Fight a lot in their early uh, mm-hmm, incarnation, mm-hmm. In Hercules' early incarnations in the Marvel uh, Comics universe. They fight all the time, but of course, Hercules, as often happens, it's a misunderstanding and he's yep. a good guy anyway. And then he eventually does become a longtime member of the Avengers mm-hmm. and, of course, was there. Jacket Avengers. Uh, it was there drunkenly uh, during the, uh, the, the Masters of Evil invasion of the, uh, of the Avengers mansion that Rosie and I love so much. This was during the reign of, of um, uh, Janet Van Dyne as leader, mm-hmm. of, leader of the Avengers. Anyway, uh, in our second Stinger, we see a beautiful green landscape, glimmering golden hall on a hill. And Jane Foster has arrived in this place and can only be Valhalla, the realm where Asgardian warriors go when they die courageously in battle, as Jane very, very obviously just has. Who is there to welcome her? It's Heimdall. And he's Woo, like, you're here. Happened. Welcome to Valhalla. Guess what? We're going up there to that hall on the hill. And, and then we are off, folks. And that is the end of our film. Uh, some thoughts. Rosie, your thoughts.
2: Well, I, I really loved this movie. Like, for me... See, I,
1: I, I had such a great
2: time. It just, it worked for me on a lot of levels. Like, I I really love stories about kids and stuff like that. Yeah. I think that's my 80s baby in me. Like, so I loved, I thought Kieran Al Dyer as Axel was so great. And I loved that kind of nod of like Axel being the chosen name and, and Heimdall had named them Astrid and stuff. There was so much fun stuff. I loved how creepy uh, Christian Bale was. Oh, I thought was he was so scary, it, and I loved how. If I how, had one, yeah. If I had one critique,
1: it's like more gore. That was more gore, like right. More he was gore. So
2: good, and like needed there's more gore. So many creepy moments. They were. He was really channeling like the child catcher from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. <laughs> this movie, I really love. Like it balances. It does one of my favorite things. It's kind of in a way. It's kind of like a Shazam in the MCU, but like. The Shazam movie had this really creepy, scary horror elements, but then this mm-hmm. really fun family aspect. And I feel like if I was a kid, I mean, I loved horror stuff when I was a kid, but if you're a kid and you're a bit spooked by the scary stuff, you will get the biggest payoff of your life when you get to that battle sequence. Like that to me, that balance between the family fun, there's also like, I, I, found, the, I found the overall arc of Thor's story like very moving. And I thought mm. that they did... A really good job in terms of the stinger of kind of and we'll talk about that more in a minute but like they they do a good job I didn't feel like anything was done to get an emotional reaction for no reason I felt like it was very well thought out and fun and wacky and wild and like there's so much Guns and Roses in this movie, but it just works so well. <laughs> and like, Taika just like, they spent that money budget on that and they're going to make it back. I was looking at going to see it on Friday and it's sold out at like every cinema near me, like at almost Spider-Man levels. And so yeah, I'm really I, excited for people to see it.
1: Same. I really, it is, it's my favorite movie of this phase. Mm-hmm. It is, I mean, listen, you know, I've talked about it a million times. I'm a lifelong comics fan. I love MCU movies. I love the bad ones. Mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. Like I'm also a big Taiko Waititi fan. I think yep. that I don't know that anybody again can quite match the mix of humor, action, and emotion that he mm-hmm. particularly brings to it. Like the opening of Thor Ragnarok. I remember. I remember watching it, and that that. Monologue that Thor has in front of Surtur in the cage, yeah, where he's talking about all the stuff that he's been doing, and, and he's
2: like, like, "Oh, I'm just spinning, like, I'm don't, just spinning. don't
1: mind me." It is like it's it it gives you story. It is incredibly funny, and it was a and it was simultaneously completely unlike anything that Thor had mm-hmm. done in mm-hmm. Dark World and Thor One. Right, that was a more serious Thor. This is like not that. And it also felt of a piece with the character that had been established in that. Yep. Like, it was not jarring. It wasn't like, who the fuck no. is this guy? It felt like a different facet of a character we had already also, known, but was completely unexpected and funny. And that continues in yeah. this, where we're getting new facets to characters that we know and love, but we're seeing them in, the, in this really unique, funny, unexpected way mm-hmm.
2: that I think think
1: only taika in the mcu is, is, this is doing in this particular way i just love the yeah, stuff that he
2: does me too and i something i really love about this is it's like it's like ragnarok but it's not like ragnarok and the kid aspects of this stuff which is something taika does so well it feels much more like he's channeling his early stuff like boy or hunt for the wilder people that charm of like the unexpected kid character that you actually like who is relatable and funny and sassy and like weird and and i loved where we left thor at the end of this movie and i i loved this kind of notion of of him carrying mjolnir and love carrying stormbreaker and and that just and she has cool like cyclops powers where she can shoot lasers out of her eyes and something i thought was really cool was uh when they they mentioned uh They say he calls her like the girl born of eternity, which one just sounds really cool, but feels like this is a film that I think kind of like Doctor Strange too, which I really liked as well. But like this feels like a kind of a new phase, which is like movies that are just allowed to stand by themselves and just be crazy, wild, fun adventures. But if there's one thing that feels obviously like it's going to stick, it's going to be love. But also I think that notion of her having cosmic beginnings is going to be important and is essentially going to establish her as like a force that can help in the future when we inevitably start to see more epoch, eon, uh, celestials, whoever else. This is someone who's standing next to her, you know, Uncle Thor, as she calls him, who is the God of Thunder. That's going to be able, they're going to be able to put up a fight against these kind of cosmic elders.
1: Yeah. uh, Take a moment, Rosie, to tell us about Eternity and some of those Oh. Cosmic Elder characters that we see in the Temple of Eternity as, oh, yeah. you know, the heads. We see them in the trailer, oh. including uh, a watcher, perhaps Uatu. Mm-hmm. Um, other figures there, who, like, t- tell us about what the role that these super, super weird cosmic, super cosmic gods play in the MCU. OK,
2: so Eternity is like incredibly cool and was actually brought to life in the movie. If you've watched this now, which I hope you have, if you're listening to this they, or if you haven't, you can go and Google the comic because they brought it to life basically identically. it's identical. Is is brought to life is kind of this like walking being made of space and time. It's it's really impeccable to see. And this is an old, this is a 60s character, no surprise, because it's absolutely out there. Um, created by Stanley and Steve Ditko, two icons. Uh, first appeared in Strange Tales 138, which was in 65, I believe. Mm-hmm. And ugh, so it depends which canon, but basically, eternity is sort of like the beginning of all things, eternity and infinity. And in the Marvel Universe, different universes are created. Out of them and from of and from them, um, my understanding is eternity currently is basically the living representation of the six one six, which I think it's is just everything, so interesting. It's, it's everything like the entire encompassed, 616, right? Yeah, yes. and and then we actually so they they've had eternity has had many children in the comics because like you said something earlier which I just love, Jason, where you were basically like the reason comics are good is somebody sees something weird and says, oh, what can I do that? How can I blow up? This is a great example of that. So Eternity's had a bunch of kids. Most famously is Eon, who we thought might have been one of the statues. We're still not sure if it's Eon or Eon's daughter. So Eternity's granddaughter, Epoch. And these are all essentially these like abstract entities that represent huge beginnings and or ends in the Marvel universe. Eon and Epoch, if you're like, oh, that sounds like something you guys have talked about before, that's because they are the creators of the Nega bands, which we hypo- hypothesized is some something being adapted in Miss Marvel with the bangles. I still believe that is the case. We saw the Bangle on a Cree yeah. arm. Um, yeah, so Eternity like only usually turns up when there's like a terrible Thanos level threat, which is why he would have been able to be there for gore. And I just thought this was like. So cool. The wish thing I I think they created for this movie, which also feels very relevant with the Miss Marvel reveals Mm -hmm. recently. But I just thought, I couldn't believe how well done this was. And I think that the notion, something that Zeus says in the stinger, which is very funny because it's like, it essentially sets up this notion of the old gods versus the new gods, Jack Kirby. But also it sets up this idea that like, something that, you know, Many comic book fans and academics and storytellers have put forward this notion, Grant Morrison being one of them, and it's been taken in kind of this ongoing conversation. Are the superheroes the modern pantheon of gods? Is that what they are? Because we've created these stories and we've put them on this place and now we worship them, you know, on the TV and all these things. This is making that text in the MCU where we're going to see Zeus wants his attention back. So, we're going to have the pantheon potentially, some of those gods from uh, the Inead that we saw in, you know, uh, Moon Knight. We're going to see a, a version where the more traditional mythological gods are pitting themselves against what they see as new gods, these people in the sky superheroes. I think it'll be very interesting to Ooh. see how eternity and the actual most ancient creatures deal with that. And also something else I thought was really interesting to throw it back to my absolute favorite Eternals. Thank you to everyone who always is like commenting, like, don't stop talking <laughs> about Eternals. Like, I do it for you guys. But like <laughs> the one statue that we didn't see in the trailer that was there was a Celestial. Mm. Um, So I think that implies with that notion that like the Celestials are that ancient as they are in the comics. And I think we're just entering into a really interesting world of like, gods. But also, it's much more like meta-textual than I realized, because I think we are going to be looking at that more boys-style conversation of like, are these the modern gods? Are these Although, the I people say, we, we do see We do see a pair
1: of celestials as our, uh, as our friends <laughs> speed the goat boat out of them. Um, I city. That. We see a couple of celestials who are too big to fit inside the
2: hall of gods, just kind of like, what, so what, yeah, what just happened? so that I wonder if that hints that when we think about that old gods, it's not just Zeus and Dionysus and all the ones that we know. Right, I mean, maybe in the Marvel universe, yeah, it's also the Celestials. It's Eternity. You know, Eternity's chilling. They seem pretty chill. And also, I feel like in the grand scheme of things, Eternity probably pretty happy that that was the wish, like birthing a child that's going to attempt maybe do good. Um, but generally, I think yeah, I think that's where we're going is seeing these kind of ancient deities want to take back their power from the soups. Let me ask you this. In the
1: comics, uh, Jane uh, becomes a, a, a member of the Congress of, of Worlds, which is kind of like a parliament of gods, essentially, governing body. I wonder if, if Valhalla is going to be a little like that. I don't okay. know what they do. But and I would imagine well, Odin actually probably would. Odin get there?
2: I don't it, know. It, he he just was, was chilling. I don't think so. I don't think right. He just kind of dropped. <laughs> <down>. <laughs> okay, so I, I'm gonna. This is we're gonna we're gonna double dip theories here so that we cover let's all double bases, dip it, right? Because I do think I, I love don't think that we've seen the last of Jane, no, and I certainly don't think I we've don't seen think the last Time so. doll, but I think another version that is equally as likely in the comics. Jane goes to Valhalla. Because they think that she died. They right. they allow her to go like they did here. But Jane goes back to Earth. And then after that, she ends up becoming a Valkyrie. And I think there's actually a Jane Foster Valkyrie comic. And I think that is very likely as well. Because I don't think... If you're an Ali Portman, yeah? And you come yeah. back and you get to hold the hammer and wear the armor, which, by the way, looked fucking banging. Like, they brought Russell Dortmund's, like, stuff (laughs) to life. And Russell and Jason were both at the premiere, which is so great. And, like, I don't know if you're just like, yeah, I'm chill to be on, like, a cosmic council. I bet you're like, so what's the next superhero? Like, who is next? I want. So I think we could see a Valkyrie where we have Jane Foster as Valkyrie or some kind of superheroic iteration that is more connected to like Valhalla and I also think as well like I just think that this isn't going to be the end of I don't think so Jane and Thor's relationship
1: here's my here's my prediction this is based on absolutely zero this won't happen (laughs) but this is me just fanficking in real time um Odin doesn't get to Valhalla it's like a Mm -hmm. you know it was he he dropped dead it's a it's a it was a you know a close call but they went to var and did a re- and and looked at it on video replay and decided he didn't actually die in battle so he's got to go to straight hell uh, thor and hercules of course have their square off at the beginning of of thor 5 but then they uh, decide to team up mm-hmm. with king valkyrie's help they managed to contact jane and heimdall in valhalla and then it's a mission in the afterlife to charge into hell and rescue Odin. Oh, I from love that. Hell.
2: Okay, I'm going to take all of that. I think I I love all of that. But instead, I'm going to flip it at the end. And what they they have to actually stop Odin because he's so pissed about not being in Valhalla that he's teamed up with like <laughs> Zeus. He's a real petty guy, man. I could see. I could see Odin no, and Zeus
1: having a very very
2: complicated relationship. Yeah, I love that, and I, I think that you're onto something because. I mean, with Ragnarok, Taika basically just established this anyway. But this very much once again establishes Thor as like the place for cosmic stuff, the place for yeah. weird stuff. They would do a whole movie in Hell, certa that the beginning is essentially already leaning into that kind of aesthetic and narrative. And like, I hope that I think when they announced that Sif was going to be in this movie. And, you know, uh, when Tessa did her speech at San Diego Comic-Con and said, you know, King Valkyrie is going to find a queen, I think a lot of people were hoping that would be like a love connection. I really hope that whatever the next Thor movie is, or maybe wherever we see King Valkyrie before again, I would like to see, you know, they did a really good job talking about queerness in this movie and establishing like the queerness of the Cronons and stuff. But I would love to actually get to see that explored a little bit more for Valkyrie, like that love romance, finding that again, just like Thor after she lost the person that she loved in battle. You know, I would love to see her get a chance to like find someone to connect with and like go around doing like cool battles. with.
1: <laughs> Necrosword, where do we see it oh. again? What are, because this is... Let's talk know, about this This actually. is not the last we've seen. It. The Necrosword appears to be destroyed, although pieces of it...
2: Yeah, it seems uh, like pieces of it actually went into Mjolnir, which I found I'd very agree. interesting... Okay, so let's talk about this because I think this is going to be a big talking point, right? In the comics, yes. it was established in the recent Donny Cates, Ryan Stegman Venom series, I think Venom issue four, that the Necrosword as we knew it from Thor God of Thunder, which we talked about yes. a lot, Asad Ribbick, Jason Aaron, was actually the first bum, symbiote, bum, bum, dun, 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 <laughs> yeah. all black, the Necrosword. And it was manifested Correct. by Null, who is this like another ancient eldritch kind of deity. Now, I would say, I think it's pretty fair to say that in this movie, they very much want to say that the necrosword is like not a living... Because in the comics, the necrosword is literally a symbiote and people who have the symbiote can manifest a a separate symbiote that is the necrosword. I think they very clearly want you to be like, this is a shadow thing. Like, this isn't a symbiote. This isn't connected to venom, blah, blah, blah. But... That said, this is very much like that early version that we saw in God of Thunder, which this whole movie is basically taken from. So I think there's definitely a way in the future that this was just like an early version or that's how it manifested for Gore, who had this connection to the Shadow Realm once he got corrupted, which, by the way, hilariously deep cut. The Shadow Realm is like barely even in any Marvel comics. I just That was like the best Taika deep cut. But um, yeah, I think... I think it could not necessarily be retcon because I think this was probably always the purpose. But I think that in the future, we should still see it take on those symbiotic tendencies because I do think a lot of people, a lot of fans, they assume that once they announced this so close after the reveal in Venom, yeah, that this was going to be symbiotes. They've kept it open so you could in the future say, oh, it kind of was, but it's definitely, there's nothing textual here to say this is a symbiote or this is, and also the Necrosword is more of a, standard weapon that can wield shadows rather than being something that obviously replicates venom i I will say it does
1: it does you know kind of like the darkhold it does imprint itself Mm -hmm. and um
2: yeah very much like the darkhold it, it, it it
1: corrupts very much like it very much like the darkhold it corrupts the wielder and you know to get it kind of into the weeds about like ip strategy it may not be the symbiote, or may, that might not be the plan, but it gives them the option Exactly, to symbiote, to do a non-Sony <laughs> <a> symbiote yeah, if also, they so wish to do that.
2: We know that there is a version or there is a tiny droplet of the Venom symbiote In a stinger with another Ted Lasso member, (laughs) by the way. Marvel was like, we're (laughs) going to outdo that. Ted Lasso's making it into the MC. They were like, it's Danny. I mean, that has to be, he has to come back. There's no way that was just a cameo. But that Venom symbiote lives in the MCU, in our version of it, in our world. Now we have this Necrosword that is already manifesting symbiote-style shadows and, and monsters and beings. It does not seem very hard to imagine that those two things could come together and create a non-Tom Hardy's chaotic energy event. Now, let me ask you, and let me ask you this.
1: We have, uh, in your uh, favorite MCU movie of all time, The Eternals, (laughs) in the sticker of that film, we saw Dane Whitman, the comics Black Knight, uh, come into possession, finally, of the Ebony Blade, which, when they showed it, Rippled in a way Actually, it that looked like a symbiote. Symbi- it was very symbiote-like. Now we've got these two black swords in the MCU proper. Um, obviously, the Black Blade is uh, you know Arthurian legend, magical, etc. Does corrupt I, I don't people though? It does corrupt people also? So I wonder how they if there is either a connection or if there's going to be very definite ways that they define these two swords differently uh, from each other.
2: So I I realized slash relearned slash kind of cemented something today when I was <laughs> writing about this in a piece that you will inevitably be able to read when this comes out about the necrosword, right? So very interestingly, in Thor Ragnarok, Hela's blades are called necroswords. And yeah. that is confirmed in What If? that the helmet, the reason it can shapeshift and control the swords is because it is a necrosword, right? So I obviously, it's not the version we've seen in the comics, and it doesn't seem to be connected to this. But I think the notion is going to be, like in the comics, there are many necroswords. And I think mm. that whatever we... whatever the, I think the Ebony Blade is going to be the first necrosword. Maybe that's the one that was created by Null. I think that we're going to... And there's already multiple things called necroswords in the MCU now both introduced by Taika and then confirmed by What If so I think that that ebony blade ripple that can't be a coincidence just like no way I I
1: agree Um, I finally the question that everybody wants to know where do we rank this movie in the MCU pantheon I will go first I I don't have a number ranking I want to see it again before I give it Mm -hmm. like a top five, top eight, top ten rankings. That said, I don't think it's better than Ragnarok, but I have it right there. In whatever tier, which is the top tier of MCU movies, which for me is like Ragnarok, Winter Soldier, uh, Infinity War, Endgame, etc. Like, uh, I have it there. Just. Because I think it's so fun and original and really great. Yeah. Like I have it right there. Not better than Ragnarok, but in the tier, whatever tier you want to put Ragnarok in, it's right there with it. Where do you? Yeah, where do you mine's
2: have it? exactly the same. Like my, my my that top tier for me is like a little bit different. You know, obviously the Eternals does sneak yes. in there, but like, <laughs> but like you know, I Ragnarok is up there for me. Like, I absolutely love Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. I'm definitely being, like, catered to in this weird kind of, like, strange adventure phase. But also, like, yeah, this is whatever that top tier is. This, I agree. Ragnarok had that, like, you couldn't... You couldn't see it coming and you could never know what it was. And that made it, like, so impactful. But definitely, like, Ragnarok... Black Panther, that top tier. But the first twenty minutes of Shang Chi, yes. that's just like only Black the Panther opening. That's like, but yeah, like m- this is definitely in that top tier for me, and I'm, I'm really excited for people to see it. I think this is. I saw when I saw Spider Man No Way Home, when I came out of the theater, there, I I saw it obviously at screening, and that's how we talked about it. But like I went to see it again, and um there were so many kids. Every little kid, every gender, every kind of kid in every kind of costume in every kind of Spider-Man T-shirt from like four to, you know, 21. Like everyone that you could ever define as like a young person. And that was so cool. And I feel like that audience is going to really love this movie. And I'm really excited about that because like, yeah, we are the generation that were lucky enough to basically, like, come up and and be there when the MCU first happened in a way that was noticeable to us because we'd lived through, like, the 90s where there was, like, no superhero movies and then we'd had, you know, these incredible non-Marvel Studios movies. But, like, we got to feel that impact. But there are kids who, like, that's all they've ever known as, like, blockbusters. And I kind of love the notion that this might be their favorite. This might be the one that really gets them excited and that makes them want to be a superhero or want to read more about superheroes and stuff that that just warms my, my heart. I'm a grandma that way.
1: <laughs> well, you know, what's one of my favorite things, Rosie is uh, hosting this podcast with you. Oh, same. Oh uh, Another great one. It's great to be back after a week off. Rosie, what do you have to plug? What's going on with Godzilla Woo! What is happening in your life and career uh, that we you. can take part in, that we can read, that we can watch, that we can listen to?
2: Well, th- I will have lots of thought articles going up. No surprises. I'm also got Miss Marvel stuff going up. You can find that Nerdist IGN. Also doing a lot of anime coverage. At IGN. I know I got a lot of manga and anime lovers out there who listen to this podcast. So. That's really cool. That's been nice to dip into Uh, Godzilla versus Batra. The final order cutoff has passed, but that does not mean that you cannot go to your comic shop and say, hey, I would like a copy of Godzilla versus Batra Rivals, which we found out sold very well in pre-orders. Thank you so much to everyone who pre-ordered. And it's going to be really exciting. We're going to be doing signings. We are going to be doing an X-ray vision giveaway that we will have more information about soon. That's right. We're going to be
1: airdropping Godzilla
2: Batra (laughs) from a a C-130
1: aircraft. We're going to be (laughs) dropping it over your home when this comic comes (laughs) out. Folks, stay tuned right here because we're going to be delivering it to you in a major way. Folks, check out the show notes for the listener's guide to X-Ray Vision, where we provide more details on everything that we talk about in each and every episode. Next week, we're back on Friday, July 15th. For the Miss Marvel finale, a bunch of TV ketchup, including The Boys and more. Uh, ed- exciting housekeeping announcement, X ray vision. The YouTube page will be moving uh, from Uncultured on YouTube to its own channel starting this week. Uh, X-Ray Vision will be taking over the Take On YouTube channel as the dedicated X-Ray Vision channel. So, check there for all the uh, all the video versions of the podcast, as well as different uh, video content that we will be releasing each and every week. Please subscribe. If you have Thor: Love and Thunder questions. Send us an email at at Crooked.com or any questions about anything whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Reach out on social. Uh, We uh, may have a time to answer them in a mailbag segment coming up next week. But of course, we'd love to hear from you. we love to hear your questions. Don't forget, also, rate and review us. X-Ray Vision, five stars. We want the five stars on every platform where you can give us reviews. (laughs) If you want to do that, if you want to review X-Ray Vision, give us the five-star ratings. That's what we need. That's what we love. X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by myself and Sandy Gerard. Our editing and sound design is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Dylan Villanueva and Matt DeGroote provide video production support. Alex Rellaford handles social media. Thank you, Brian Vasquez, for our theme music.
2: See you next time. Bye, folks. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day,